Hello and welcome to The Chiefs, our new strand of Monocle 24's big interview series. I'm Tyler Brule. Over the course of the series, we'll be speaking to chief execs, chief marketing officers, chief strategists, editors-in-chief, COOs, and more. Today, we speak with UBS CEO Sergio Armati from his home office in Ticino. Armati has steered the Swiss multinational investment bank and financial services giant UBS since 2011. The bank's longest-serving CEO has led the firm through economic headwinds and a major restructuring of its private banking division with a steady hand. When COVID-19 struck and many small and medium-sized businesses in Switzerland were impacted, UBS, along with the Swiss federal government, was a crucial player to assist them with liquidity. So just how prepared was the bank for the challenges of a global pandemic, and did their very Swissness help them navigate the challenge? In Zurich, I'm Tyler Brule, and I'm delighted to welcome Serge Ramati to the Chief's edition of The Big Interview. I wanted to start, Mr. Amati, by looking at contingencies, because maybe from the outside, if I'm sitting at another bank somewhere else in the world, if I'm a finance ministry, it seems, and I say it seems, and as before we started this interview, we said everything is a little bit relative these days, it seems that UBS was well prepared for this. Was there a contingency plan built around a pandemic like this? No, to be honest, of course not. Uh, Nobody could uh, really anticipate uh, how... COVID-19 would develop. Also because if you go back, the most recent pandemic or situation were uh, the SARS uh, and uh, Ebola, and they were contained. So I think that uh, the assumptions for too long now with inside, we can say for too long has been that COVID could be contained. And in that sense, uh, not really. But uh, of course, the two issues have helped a lot. Uh, I would say, first of all, our business continuity management, which is designed globally to take in consideration potential disruption to access to our facilities, to our digital capabilities, uh, is based on a physical disruption. So not really on an invisible disruption like uh, the virus is. But the base, I would say 70-80% was based on technology and um, thinking about how to react to a crisis. And then the rest was complemented. The second item that was very important over the years, we invested massively in technology front to back, not only client-facing technology, but also the infrastructure. So one of the most important issues for us was uh, the fact that not only 95% of the people are enabled to work from home, but the fact that they are all able to log in at the same time. They are all able to access to all their applications. And that is uh, something we prepared not for this issue, but we were preparing ourselves for the next chapter of digitalization in the bank. On that, I want to come back to maybe the back office and the technology component, because if you look over the past few weeks, it's curious that when Switzerland, and I'm talking from Bern and also with the banks as well, when they announced, obviously, the package of measures to address SMEs and large businesses as well, it didn't get so much news. But now we're a few weeks on. Everyone is looking to Switzerland right now, wondering how Switzerland did it. And of course, we've been covering the story very closely in terms of the loans made available, of course, the coverage by the government, also you taking a risk in all of this as well as UBS. Can you tell us 
as much as possible. How did this come together so quickly? Because, of course, early days, everyone was panicked. But, I mean, now we look back, we say this happened incredibly fast. Was this really the nature of a small country and a few powerful banks and a very focused government? But what were the mechanics in the background, Mr. Amati? Well, first of all, I think if you really go back at the early stage, uh, if anything, that, you know, we were a little bit uh, concerned that maybe Switzerland wasn't reacting. And some people were pointing out that Switzerland wasn't reacting alongside uh, other countries in, in announcing at least uh, packages and the intentions. Now, the truth of the matter is that Switzerland was planning carefully what is possible to do, trying to leverage on existing uh, frameworks on how the government intervenes in the process of granting uh, guarantees uh, to companies that export. And in that sense, uh, the framework was the same. So the idea was, generally speaking, how to expand the existing import-export guarantees provided by the government in normal days into something that is designed to respond to the crisis. It took a little bit longer but was, at the end of the day, fairly uncomplicated, and that's the reason it's successful. So I don't think that there was a, any particular other issue other than, yes, maybe being a small country, more focused on managing the crisis rather than the politics around it has been helpful. Banks were part of the solutions because we agreed how to adapt uh, the current setup for import-export guarantees into something practical. For example, by pointing out that the best way would be for each customer to go to their direct bank and not to try to go to a third-party bank where they have no relationship in order to speed up and avoid delays in the anti-money laundry, know your clients uh, processes, so that once the request was submitted, you could also process it very quickly. It is true that banks are taking part of the risk in the second facility, in the one for larger companies. But in the one thing that made it very easy also is the government stepping in for small companies and say, okay, for those ones, we guarantee. And the only thing that banks need to do is to put their infrastructure available to clients. Uh, the fact that we do it for free because we will not make any money out of it. We don't want to make any money out of this facility. We are just seeing ourselves as the transmission mechanism for governments to put their health into the economy. Which is wonderful, and it's great that it's happened. But we also heard, we're not going to name other banks elsewhere in the world, but we heard about similar facilities being set up, that the money was there. But the trickle-down process in many countries, it still hasn't happened. They're saying the same thing. Go to your branch. The facilities will be there. We know you as a customer, and it's still not flowing through. What happened in the background then at UBS also? I mean, we've heard extraordinary stories of people going, ticking the six boxes, answering. There was a series of key questions that customers had to answer. And then the money was in their account six, seven hours later or the next morning. Was this infrastructure already built or was this something that had to happen right away? Because, I mean, nevertheless, I mean, you still have to approve these things. So was it deploying lots of people working 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Was it technology? How did it happen? Well, first of all, as I mentioned before, it was very important that clients had already a relationship with the bank. So that is much easier. Now, having said that, 70% of the clients that applied for a loan had no loan facilities with the bank. So basically had no debit or no credit exposure to the bank. So it was something new for them as well. It happened, you know, first of all, during the first weekend, the package was announced on a Thursday, was available Friday around noon. So we got a lot of uh, requests the first day. And during the weekend, a lot of people in the bank were working. 
to set up and process those requests in order to make sure that on Monday morning, not only the money was available on the account, but as you mentioned, that in the following days, we would be able to respond quickly and de facto granting the lines to clients immediately. So it's a combination, as I mentioned before, technology, the fact that we knew the clients, and the effort of our people to work over the weekend, if not 24-24, almost that, that way, in order to be up and running. And the vast majority of the clients uh, were quite precise in also in filling the form. Uh, because the real complication at the end of the day was also the fact that some clients didn't answer all the questions in the appropriate way or didn't submit the very basic documents that we were requesting, and therefore we had to delay a little bit. But in a nutshell, I think it was multi-facet kind of dynamics that contributed to that success and not only one item. It's quite interesting, by the way, that as of today, only 40% of the credit lines available I had been drawn. So I told you before, 70% of the clients had no debit with the bank, no credit relationship with the bank, so only purely a payment or banking relationship. And so far, the people had only drawn down 40% on average of the facility. That means that at that point in time, for many of entrepreneurs and people, it was important to have the certainty of having the fund in the future rather than an immediate need for the fund. And I think we have to add and be clear about this as well, because I think you make an interesting point about filling out the form and making sure it's all proper, because it did come with, listen, it was a very Swiss form as well. If you get this wrong, you're also going to go to jail for five years as well, as well. So that was also a good stinger to make sure that people were focused as well when they answered their questions. What does that tell you, though, when you look at your customer base and, let's say, the Swiss Mittelstand in general, when you hear that only 40% has been drawn down? Does that come as a little bit of a positive surprise to you? Well, we knew uh, dynamics of the Swiss economy. The Swiss economy is fundamentally strong. We saw it in the last few years growing well above the average of the European economies and uh, more aligned with the best performing economy in the world. Very competitive, very uh, highly focused on uh, specialization and added value and not very commoditized by nature. So we can't play big. We have to play the game of being a specialist. And uh, so very resilient. So I wasn't very surprised to hear that, but to some extent, the resilience of the economy or, or our SMEs hasn't surprised me. But I have to say that I was surprised that they drawn so little in the early stage. I'm talking about 40% now, but most importantly, in the first couple of weeks, it was no more than 30%. So it's a confirmation of the resilience and the fact that uh, fundamentally the Swiss economy at all levels, not only the multinationals, because the strength of the Swiss economy is based on the fact that we are able to have very successful multinationals based in Switzerland, but also very successful uh, SMEs and middle stand that are internationally known for their quality and expertise. So not so surprised. What is either Sergio Ramotti's view or the UBS house view looking forward? We've seen the Bundesrat and there's obviously an extraordinary session happening in Bern at the moment. And we don't want to make this just a, you're a global bank, we're a global program. We don't want to make it just a Swiss discussion. But if we stay here for a moment, they're talking, of course, consumer confidence is way down. And we're really talking about some pretty serious contraction in this economy. Now, is that a Swiss conservative view? Is there a take that things could improve faster or is even little resilient Switzerland in for a very tough ride? Or could things accelerate better and move to a more positive position faster than we're maybe hearing? 
I guess, as I said before, I do think that Switzerland is well positioned to absorb the shock uh, in a better way and also most likely to benefit from any rebound. Having said that, you know, in general, that goes beyond Switzerland because, of course, at the end of the day, we are affected by what's going on globally. You know, we are an export country in that sense. And I have to say that this crisis is coming on top of an existing fragile environment. I mean, you know, if you look at both macroeconomic, but also the geopolitical environment was extremely fragile at the moment uh, COVID started. So that's the reason why it's much more painful. And if you think about governments and central bank intervention are coming with no limits, but they are also coming on top of existing programs. And therefore, we know that it's not necessarily just a fiscal stimulus or a monetary stimulus that can help to resolve the matter because we have fundamental issues, particularly in Europe, but, you know, arguably around the world that needs to be fixed. And in that sense, uh, probably the reason why people are cautious is because they know it's not just a matter of 6 to 12 to 18 months before a remediation is found around COVID, but it's also that you need to resolve a broader fundamental issues affecting uh, the world economies and society in general. When you look maybe a little north of here, if you look to Brussels, and they were talking about a political context, if you look towards Geneva, certainly from the stewardship of health and medicine with the WHO, we look to Washington, we look elsewhere around the world. Are you surprised or maybe a little bit shocked by the lack of at least central leadership? Because so many people are going their own path. You know, we can go back to the start of the interview, and obviously many governments responded very differently, different multi-track approaches. How do you prop up business? Very, very different guidance to, of course, the public, and certainly now as businesses start to resume, all kinds of different sectors doing different things. And certainly in a confined place like Europe, it's very confusing to say, well, look, at the Austrians are doing one thing, the Swiss are doing that, the Belgians are doing something completely different. Are we missing some type of central leadership, some type of central guidance to get everybody on the same page because it seems we're emerging now into a much more disjointed world. Well, look, you know, yes, I would agree with you, but I'm not so sure uh, it's something new. I mean, this, this situation with COVID has only highlighted what you just mentioned, that as an ongoing trend, even before uh, COVID, the kind of call for deglobalization and focusing on more uh, country or regional interests that has been developing. So in a sense, it's not very surprising. As I mentioned before, also, I think on this COVID, people really thought at the very beginning, and, and maybe we shouldn't be too critical in that sense to governments around the globe, because, you know, effectively, it's very rare that those kind of issues are not contained, or that in the past, in the last 20, 30 years, we were always able worldwide to contain such viruses spreading as a global phenomenon. So in a sense, it was a little bit of underestimation of the issues, adding on to this deglobalization and parochial view of the world, that then when you talk about Europe, of course, you know, if you think that last year and early part of this year, in Europe, there was a debate about uh, removing the summertime adjustment. You understand that Europe voted for every country potentially, potentially in theory, to be able to adhere or not adhere to the summertime change. So if you think about coordination in Europe, it tells you how fragile the situation is. So I'm not surprised at all to see what happened because Europe in that sense has yet to really fulfill its desire to be a common project where the 
true political unity is uh, expressed in true actions. In a sense, the only thing that really seems to pull together Europe is one currency, which is definitely not enough for addressing um, many of the topics that are now affecting uh, our society, but also the economy in Europe and, and the urgencies that are needed to, in order to fix them. Do you think that provides an opportunity, Mr. Amotti, for the private sector, for corporate leadership? Does it matter whether it's someone sitting at a pharma company in Basel or it can be someone who is sitting at another financial services company somewhere in Europe to step up and not take the role of government, but to certainly offer a level of leadership in stepping up around the microphone? Because I think, I feel when we speak to guests today, everyone is really scratching their head and it doesn't matter whether they're a captain of industry or they're trying to run their small business in Graubünden. It's very complicated for people. People are looking for a level of leadership. Moving forward, can that role be taken by companies of your stature and others? Well, I think that we, yes, but only on a complementary basis. I do believe that Governments and the private sector and other stakeholders all need to play a vital role. I'm not so sure that any of them on their own can really rule. I don't really believe into governments that alone responsibilities in, in good times and in bad times for sure. Governments need to have the private sector helping. You mentioned the pharmaceutical industry. Banking is also another part of the solution, but many other sectors uh, play a role. I would say the food industry also play a role in making sure that, uh, for example, the supply chain uh, is there and people don't panic on the way they react to potential care of scarcity of food or even media in the way they present facts. They play uh, responsibilities. Now, everybody has to pick up what they can do effectively to help and not to try to intervene and take the role of somebody else and confusing the other. So as banks, for example, you know, we are happy to be part of the solution this time. So we are, contrary to the financial crisis, we are now in a position to be, as I mentioned before, the transmission mechanism of the government on how to help the economy and companies to recover, to get the liquidity they need, but also ourselves beyond that. If you think about as a bank, we granted five times more credits out of our own risk and credit book than the government's programs. So we know that this is the time you need to stay close to clients. The pharma industry is really putting a lot of efforts to give any, in any way through research, but also through available tools uh, and uh, you know, helping to mitigate or address the issues. So everybody has to play a role. Of course, this is the time where Across the board, no matter if you're talking about private and public sector, during a crisis, you see the true character of people as individuals or as organizations or as a society, how they react, how they behave. Crises are great lessons to get to know people and companies. And in that sense, I'm pretty sure that the post-mortem of the crisis will also leave uh, some interesting lessons. What's interesting about you as head of a bank, you've also been involved personally as well with businesses of different scales, which is interesting. So you can really say there is an entrepreneurial side to what you do in the grittiest, most sleeves up way, as much as, of course, working for a big global financial institution. If you look ahead next 12 months, 24 months, what are the triggers that have to occur? Are there some basics? And I think certainly people listening to this program you know, would love to hear from you. What has to happen now? What type of mobilization do we need to see? If I'm listening to this and I'm running a small business in San Francisco, 
what do I need to be doing to kickstart things, knowing that the world is not flat and I might be a global player, but things are reopening at different stages. And of course, I have different access to different schemes and different liquidity concepts around the world. But what would you say, Mr. Amati? Well, first of all, uh, the notion of going back to normal, you need to really understand and go deep into understanding each business everywhere. What is normal mean? Uh, the so-called new normal will have two different aspects. Very few businesses will truly go back into operating the way they were before or having their customers behaving in the way they were behaving before. So what you need to define is exactly looking at how things have changed, how long is going to be a transition phase in the permanent uh, normal, new normal, how much is going to be permanent and how much is going to be temporary. But people have to really start to think about how things will change. I would only advise people not to make the mistake that once the solution is found on COVID, things are going to change because and are going to go back into the old habits. It's not going to be the case. This is going to stay with us for a long time because people will be still skeptical and scared about this item. And... Also, clients and people have learned to behave and socialize in completely different ways, even if it's only 20% the change. I mean, which is a lot, by the way. It has huge ramifications on the economy. So each small business, large business has to think about what does it mean for me. And seriously think about that now instead of waiting for things to happen. It's very crucial to be successful in the future. And just before we go, you are leaving the bank, not right away, but soon-ish. You're heading to another big Swiss institution. Do you leave UBS? Are you happy, aside from the current situation that we're in, also addressing that in many ways things have actually gone quite well, despite everything for UBS? Does your successor, do they inherit a stable anchored business? Well, I hope so. I think that uh, was uh, one of my objectives was definitely UBS, first of all, strong and resilient and a bank that would be able to uh, navigate uh, any external event or idiosyncratic uh, situation from a position of strength and also at the same time uh, maybe uh, even capturing opportunities that always come when you have this location. So in that sense, uh, I started with a crisis and uh, most likely I'm going to leave with a crisis and managing successfully this phase and uh, ending over the bank uh, in a position uh, to go to the next chapter in a successful way was always my goal and my desire is to see the bank doing even better in a couple of years' time, which it means that the fundamentals that were supporting our business model were sound and that will make uh, my satisfaction even greater. I mean, right now I'm focused on, on doing the next six months, but uh, eventually uh, it is clear that, as I mentioned before, the true test of how good the work that my colleagues and I put together in the last few years was eventually the last three to four months. And now we need to prove again in the next three to four months, six months, that we are able to do the same good job so that our clients and our shareholders, and at the end of the day, what is most important issues as well, also our employees all feel proud of being associated with UBS. My 
thanks to Sarah Ramotti for joining us on this week's episode of the Chief's edition of The Big Interview. Look out for our next episode with Value Retail's Scott Malkin. The Big Interview was produced and edited by Paige Reynolds with sound engineering from David Stevens in London and in Zurich. I'm Tyler Brulé. Thank you very much for listening.